Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Well, hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Delilah Rothenberg, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Pre-Distribution Institute, and Raphael Schapp, I think it is, who's the economist, uh, also the Pre-Distribution uh, Initiative. Raphael, let's kick off with you first. Let's get a bit of a background into you and how you became involved in the uh, in the initiative. Sure. I uh, actually came from investment banking as a tax attorney, and in 2008, I decided to study economics. And in my PhD uh, in economics, I became interested to understand the link between inequality and financial markets, and specifically, you know, how differences between investors in terms of investor level characteristics, um, like risk aversion and horizons, investment horizons but also differences in terms of rates of return, if that could significantly move the, the needle in terms of the wealth distribution, resulting wealth distribution. And after the PhD, I became a fellow at the Open Society Foundations, uh, became interested to really understand the broader macroeconomic trends in the past 40, 50 years that have contributed to an increase in, in wealth and income inequality, and specifically looking at how profits seem to increasingly concentrate amongst a smaller number of firms and workers, um, while the rest of the economy was left behind. Um, I was looking at trends in firm level volatility, but also earnings volatility. Uh, so the increase in precarity for people being measured through the uh, volatility of their earnings and started really being becoming interested in this concept of, of risk and systemic risk. And uh, with Delilah, I realized actually that institutional investors also play a role in the story. And so started to focus on private equity and really understand the shadow banking sector, you know, the sector that provides credit, but outside of traditional banking institutions and that is uh, less regulated. So, you know, what are new forms of systemic risk that have been created through changing patterns in investors and investor behavior? That's when we started the pre-distribution initiative with a focus on how we can incorporate certain concerns having to do with the um, investor level up in the capital chain of how investments are structured. How can that be captured in the ESG framework, ESG investing framework? Uh, and that's how we basically got started with our research uh, with the pre-distribution initiative. I'm curious around how much have you studied the role of debt in the system, which is actually perpetuating some of these inequalities that you discussed in, in terms of your PhD, I guess, in the first instance, and then more recently? Sure. So what we noticed is since the late 80s, uh, mid 90s, you know, this fall in uh, the interest rate, which has been something which has been facilitated through a central bank policy and a number of different puts, you know, Bernanke put and so forth, with lower and lower interest rates, which has then made it harder for investors to generate their required rates of return. And so we've seen investors move up the risk return spectrum, sort of being forced to increase risk 
Uh, and we can see this through the proliferation of a range of debt instruments, you know, investment in high yield bonds, leverage loans, but also uh, leverage buyouts. This is something that we we document in a, in a paper which we recently posted on SSRN called ESG 2.0, uh, where we actually go through this. And so we see this increase of, of corporate debt in the system. We think that creates uh, new forms of risk. You know, it makes it it forces companies to service this debt. It makes balance sheets more precarious. It increases the risk of bankruptcy. It also leads to reduced investment. And in the long run, I, we think is not good for workers um, and also not good for uh, communities at large. And we think some of that can actually boomerang back to investors when, you know, in the form of debt crises. And so, so that's an issue that we may now be facing something which economists refer to as a debt trap, which is that seemingly higher interest rate and a higher interest rate environment would be desirable and would make it easier for investors. Um, but we may be so leveraged, the economy as a whole may be so leveraged that it's difficult to increase interest rates without precipitating a lot of these companies into bankruptcies. You may have heard of the term zombie firms. They're dead, but still alive. And there's been an increase in zombies in the economy, also dangerous downgrades in corporate debt. So there's a sense that the economy as a whole is really over leveraged, but we may be in face, facing a, a trap where it's really difficult to, to get out of that situation. You've raised a lot of interesting points there. One of the things that comes to, to my mind is, is really around debt becoming such a common part of the system. You know, historically coming out of the war, people were pretty hesitant to take on debt. It's now totally changed. The narrative around debt and the accumulation of wealth has really become directly connected to taking on debt. Uh, and it's seen historically through people taking on larger and larger amounts of debt, particularly for their, their house predominantly. But now it's seen as being, being very common throughout society. And we're encouraging people more and more through different payday loans uh, easy payment systems. It's very common in Australia now, these easy for payments uh, to be used for consumer finance. You know, how much is the problem of what we've got in terms of these systemic risks that you talk about, the uh, the higher in- indebtedness in the system that makes us very fragile, part of just this changed narrative around the role of debt? It seemed to be very uh, you know, commonplace today as opposed to sort of in the 1950s and 60s where it was seen to be really manage it quite closely, don't be indebted, don't be some uh, you know, a person that's currently always under pressure from you know, huge amounts of a debt load that they've got to pay back. How much do you think that now we've actually trapped people down the wrong path because of the, the marketing around uh, the role of debt in society? No, this is very interesting. I mean, obviously there's consumer debt. That's one part of the equation. And the issue here is, is wage stagnation. So for most people, um, wages have not gone up as fast as education, housing, healthcare, etc. And so to compensate for the lagging income that's become disconnected from productivity increases, people have turned to credit. And a lot of that credit actually is provided by uh, the top 1%. So it's also linked to inequality um, that are holding as, as, as assets a lot of consumer debt, which is owed by the bottom 99%. Um, there's an interesting paper called The Savings Glut uh, that, that describes this by uh, Mian and some co-authors. 
so anyway, so that's that's consumer debt and obviously predatory practices, et cetera. Then there's housing, you know, mortgages. A lot of that was facilitated by financial innovations uh, such as securitization that made it possible to, you know, for banks and the shadow banking sector to uh, originate these mortgages and then repackage them in a way that made it more appealing for investors. So those types of financial innovation seemingly, you know, allow people to who are subprime to buy a house. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but then that turned into you know the weapons of mass destruction that gave us the 2008 crisis. And then of course there's corporate debt, uh, which is what we were talking about just, just prior to your comment. And here, I, I, I it seems that corporation companies have turned to debt because it's cheap, cheaper than equity. Leverage seemingly gives you higher returns for investors and shareholders, and the debt is cheap. Interest rates are low. The central banks around the world, and in the U.S., the Fed in particular, have really incentivized this cheap debt by recently, with the the pandemic, creating lines of credit and offering to purchase high yield corporate bonds, which which you know, which is like a new form of quantitative easing, and that's kept the yields pretty low, so that the debt is priced arguably cheaper than the risk level associated with it. And so that's incentivizing rich corporates to take advantage. Um, in Amazon was able to borrow billions of dollars at record, uh, record-breaking record low interest rates, I think 0.4%, as low as 0.4%. So the large corporates are really taking advantage of this. So there are a lot of issues around debt. I, I feel like one could write a book about the political economy of debt in the neoliberal age or something like that. <laughs> well, another thing I'd, I'd add to that is that, you know, beginning in the, I guess it was uh, the 70s or 80s, there was this rising philosophy of the discipline of debt in terms of corporate debt and a belief among investors and um, a lot of work done by academics that debt improves the profitability and efficiency of companies. And so there's been an embrace of debt by corporates and from what I've read, there's a belief that the strength of the capital structure is not always necessarily priced into the evaluation of the equity side of a company. And so um, equity investors might be underappreciating issues around a company's capital structure when they invest and might not be accurately reflected in the stock price or that that level of risk might not be accurately reflected in the stock price. And so that's interesting because equity investors seem to value the leverage because it does magnify returns. And uh, and so there's something around that. And then there's also, of course, the limited liability structure that protects corporate directors and investors from uh, the risk of bankruptcy. And then there's the tax incentives that exist in so many jurisdictions around the world in terms of um, incentivizing companies to take on more debt. And so these are things that we should really think about. And I loved what you raised on the last podcast that we did together, Alex, about this idea that perhaps carried interest when it comes to private equity should be uh, charged on unlevered returns. That's something that, as I've mentioned before, we, we remain very interested in workshopping. I'm curious, Delilah, around your thoughts about innovation in this space, right? Some of the, the areas that Raphael mentioned around uh, high-yield bonds, leveraged loans, collateralized uh, loan obligations, these CLOs, for example, These are some of these things are relatively new or they've at least been democratized to make it very easy for people to, to issue and also for 
consumers to buy it, right? For for investors to to purchase. Um, have we really actually created more problems through this innovation uh, in, in the debt structures? It's a really good question. And actually, it was something that came to mind when we were talking before about consumer debt. Um, so just stepping away from the corporate debt for, for a minute, which I absolutely agree with you on. I mean, in impact investing, access to credit has become such a large component of the impact investing space and providing access to credit to low-income borrowers. And I think Raphael raises an important perspective in her comments, which is, should we be trying to, should we be focusing on providing credit to low-income or low-net-worth borrowers? Or should we be at least taking some of that emphasis and transitioning it to how can we get more wealth and income to these individuals? And um, I think that there's there's so much focus and and cultural embrace of debt right now that there's almost a an oversight of the solutions of just finding ways to build equity ownership among individuals or help them build their incomes. So I do. I do think that there's an obsession with financial innovation and not enough on what are just the real basics of a fundamental economy. It's funny. I think there's a conspiracy theory to uh, the amount of debt in the system, which is people that are over indebted will not ask for pay rises. They will work very quietly and and diligently and uh, put the extra hours because they do have such a large debt load. And it is something that if you think about the the world pre-COVID, how different would the world be if we didn't have the huge amount of debt that we had in the in the, the system prior to COVID? How different would it be in terms of how people live their life, how we could easily work through things because people would have had a savings pool alongside them as opposed to now being so scared because they don't even have enough money to pay $400 or $1,000 uh, charge that may come up. No, I was thinking as you were talking Alex, about the, the the recent Federal Reserve's survey that they did just before the pandemic that showed that I think as much as a third of households could not come up with $400 in an emergency. And clearly this predated the pandemic and the pandemic only made things worse. Regarding what Delilah was saying before, that's, that's a whole concept of pre-distribution, which is the idea that we need to better align people's compensation with the wealth that they create. And regarding debt, I think there's an added issue, which is that corporate debt is increasingly not translating into increased investment, particularly productive investment. So as corporate debt is increasing, investment, we're actually under where it should be at. There's a study by Thomas Philippon, who's an economist at NYU, and he came up with this number of, on average, 10% lower than where it should be. And this is seems to be driven by concentrated industries. So large firms are borrowing more, but they're not investing. Um, and so that has that that may very well be connected with you know things like secular stagnation and, and slow growth and low productivity growth. So these low interest rates, you know, that there's an argument that hey should stimulate investment. Actually, they haven't really done that. And it seems that only a few firms, namely the large corporates that are able to take advantage of these low interest rates and other firms aren't really borrowing and investing. Uh, so that's also an issue for for growth and growth prospects. Yeah. One other thing that I 
I think is interesting in terms of the low interest rates and the relationship with inequality is that when you have low interest rates, valuations of um, anything of assets tend to increase. And um, as Raphael highlighted, those who already have assets like large companies or high net worth individuals or private equity firms are well positioned to take advantage of low interest rates and use debt to purchase more assets. And so the valuations go up and then you have lower income people or lower net worth people who now have higher barriers to entry to invest, whether that's to buy a home because valuations have gone up or to invest in equities because valuations have gone up. And so the the chasm really, did I say that word right? It's not chasm, chasm. Chasm is <laughs> um, fine in Australia. <laughs> it really, uh, really grows from these dynamics. So that seems to be something that is not very well understood by so many folks out there. Well, there's also another issue that comes up and that's the tax imbalance. So, for example, for people to earn income or earn interest, for example, on their savings, they in, in the case of Australia, they pay it on their marginal tax rate. But in the terms of capital gains, you get all sorts of benefits as you hold it for longer. So, the person that's trying to save and maybe save through a traditional savings route in the bank uh, is, is taxed more heavily than somebody who actually can afford to take higher risk and move into various equities uh, where they can capture capital gains. And then they've given a, a head up in terms of lower taxes. That's a great point. Other examples of tax incentives you know, not really being uh, aligned with predistrib- predistribu- fair predistribution. Uh, there's also the issue of uh, compensation in private equity and whether carried interest should be taxed as ordinary income or not. But, you know, there's a misconception that the average person is really able to take advantage of rising market valuation uh, gains attributable to rising market valuations. When you look at the stock ownership, it's it's highly unequal, right? 45% of Americans don't own any stock at all. And 84% of all stocks owned by Americans belong to the wealthiest 10% of households. So th- this idea that there's a wealth effect Right, and that low interest rates can stimulate the economy through their impact on wealth, but actually that may not be be, be working quite as intended. Ironically, we we've actually seemed to have reached the bottom, unless we want to go to to full negative rates in the U.S., which uh, it seems like they're not keen on doing. Europe has obviously tested it, but we've gone almost to the bottom of just lowering and lowering interest rates. That doesn't seem to work in terms of the stimulus that's required. And the stimulus is required purely because we've got such a very large debt load already. So it seems like we're in this stalemate of what do we do? Um, You you can't really lower interest rates anymore. So now it seems to be uh, various forms of QE or some other de facto style of modern monetary theory that allows for more money to be effectively printed. But that doesn't seem to be solving the bigger problem uh, in any case, because now you're just adding more money to the system, which causes inflation, that's going to hurt the people at the bottom even more, driving more inequality. So we seem to be in a very dangerous position here. Agreed. Yes. I mean, the, the real interest rates are actually negative, and that's not really a good situation to be in. There's risk of inflation, and as you as you point out, that, that could be quite devastating and destabilizing in the economy. 
Uh, one thing that we've been thinking about at, at the pre-distribution initiative is whether you know inflation has been properly measured to begin with, right? That we've been told that we've been living in a world where inflation has been very, very low for a very long time, and the central banks you know, keep missing their 2% target. When we look at certain types of assets, such as housing, but also the cost of education, cost of healthcare, that seems to have gone through the roof and so may not be properly captured by the traditional inflation measures and indices. There's another problem that comes from this, though, because if you end up with higher amounts of inflation, ultimately then the central bank by default will need to start to cool that inflation, which means increase interest rates. But they've also then convinced a whole lot of people to then take on a large amount of debt through their house, through consumer financing and so forth. Um, And these people can't afford even a half, you know, or, or full 1% interest rate change. Yeah, so this could, could actually precipitate uh, a solvency crisis. Uh, and this is where it gets very disturbing and it's very worrying that central banks could be playing with fire and may not be able to rectify a situation if and when it is needed. So, you know, I, we've been thinking about what is it that investors could be doing in the meantime, because relying on central bank perpetual interventions is, is, is actually not sustainable. And there are real dangers, including all forms of systemic risks that uh, are present, that I think are increasingly being acknowledged by the powers that be, including the IMF, that are suggesting that monetary policy, uh, the traditional way of thinking, needs to be adjusted to account for the presence of these new forms of systemic risk. So we're no longer in a world of this easy trade-off between inflation and unemployment and all of that. And the, the central banks don't necessarily have all the theoretical and conceptual tools that would be needed to, to manage this risk. So QE has introduced the, the, the possibility of very sudden market reversal, right? Like equity valuations seem to be very inflated and very disconnected from fundamentals. And QE has played a role in, in perpetuating the situation. So there's also an issue of moral hazard. Unclear uh, and, and that the central banks have the ability to really manage this. So it's an interesting era for monetary policy. Delilah, one of the things that comes to mind is that if you look all around the world after the COVID hit, uh, there seems to be this whole focus in don't worry, COVID, we're moving past COVID, go out and spend, go out and spend your money. But hold on, we just said 12 months ago that no one had any money. And now we're telling people that any little bit of savings that they may have actually built up over COVID by not traveling, by not spending, going to restaurants and so forth. Now go out and spend it. Now, how do we get out of this system where we just end up creating more underlying systemic risk in the system by p- forcing people to go out and spend this this constant push for consumerism and the constant obsession with GDP growth is is part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. It is part of the problem. And I think Raphael mentioned Atif Mian, one of the academics that we've been following his work. And he's pointed out that a lot of uh, investment is going, well, Raphael really talked about this in a different way, but a lot of uh, investment of the wealthy is going to funding the spending of those who don't have wealth. And um, a lot of it is in consumer industries. And I think that one of the things investors don't appreciate or don't think much about is when they invest in an industry that is not 
necessarily needed for human survival or for basic infrastructure or social infrastructure or food and agriculture or energy. There's so much investment in frivolous industries. And one thing investors could do if they want to address climate change, as we talked about in, um, in a discussion prior to this podcast, and if they and one thing investors could do if they want to address other issues that have to do with nature and limited natural resources is think about what are they actually investing in and is that fueling an overconsumption because it's getting us into these situations where we're depleting natural resources, we're polluting the environment, we're causing climate change, we're, um, and we're finding ourselves in a debt trap. And there are some real fundamentals of the economy that need to change. It's interesting because we, we're talking a lot about asset owners being these universal owners. I don't really see many of these universal owners raising their hand to address these problems. They, they seem to be skipping over them. Is that fair to say? I think that the system has evolved over the years to be this way. And it's very bureaucratic. And we are sort of finding ourselves in this paradigm that is not healthy, but there's not a recognition that we need to change it or that there's not there's not an understanding of what needs to change. And so if I were to put myself in the shoes of a chief investment officer, for instance, of a large institutional investor, my immediate priorities and incentives are about meeting our required rate of return, benchmarking, and and so forth. And so I think that what we need to do uh, with institutional investors, universal owners, is take a step back and say, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? What should the performance metrics be? How should we be benchmarking? What, How frequently should our performance reviews be? What should our incentives be set on? How do we measure long-term systemic and systematic risk and integrate that into our investment strategy? And I I think that there's a lot of discussion about long-term investing when it comes to, and I think I mentioned this on the on the last podcast, but perhaps people are just going to listen to one part of this series. So I think it's worth mentioning again that there's so much attention to whether corporate executive compensation and incentives are long-term. There's not a lot of focus on how to improve the long-term incentives of investment teams at the top of the capital markets value chain with institutional asset owners and allocators. And so that's one of the things that we're very interested in doing at the pre-distribution initiative because so much of what happens in the economy stems from that very top level of the capital markets value chain. I'll throw a question back to you, Raphael, and that is in the banking system, we've understood that there are systemic risks that sit in it. Uh, We've created the Basel system to have a set amount of capital that needs to be put against the loans that come out. uh, And that's helped to stabilize the banking system. Do we need something similar for corporates to address some of these very large corporates that are very heavily indebted uh, to actually put almost a de facto limit on on how much debt they can take out? Sure. I mean, after 2008, we had a regulatory overhaul that made the banking system safer. And that seems to have worked. But, well, there's an analogy with the game of whack-a-mole, right? So like the, the risk disappeared in the banking sector, but it didn't disappear from the economy as a whole. What happened is that the non-banking institutions, the so-called shadow banking sector, step, stepped up to provide some of this riskier lending that wasn't being offered by traditional banks. And so, the, but, but because the shadow banking se- sector is not regulated, 
in the same way as the, the banking sector, more it has the ability to absorb more risk. And so many people are suggesting, and I think that we would generally agree, that there needs to be a more comprehensive regulatory framework that regulates credit activities, regardless of where they are being, uh, where they originate from. Uh, Delilah, a final comment? You know, I, I absolutely agree with uh, what Raphael just said. And we often get asked by various stakeholders, it's great what you're doing at the pre-distribution initiative, but isn't this the work of policymakers and regulators? And our answer is very often, it's it's everybody who needs to come together uh, and work on this. Definitely regulators and policymakers have an important role to play, but institutional investors especially those that uh, define themselves as universal owners or ESG investors, responsible investors, impact investors, addressing negative impacts and avoiding them is part of their responsibility. And even if they don't consider themselves responsible investors or ESG investors, it is part of their fiduciary duty to address these risks because they manifest in the financial system and in the economy and they boomerang back to investors in the form of crises and lower returns and high valuations and lack of diversification. And so um, investors do need to think about these issues and act. And if they do some workshopping themselves and if the pre-distribution initiative can create a laboratory for them to think about these issues and co-create solutions, then we'll be better positioned to come up with interventions that can be instituted into policy and regulation. Because often what happens, I mean, just looking at the example we just talked about with the global financial crisis, you had regulation that came in uh, focused on banks, and then you had the game of whack-a-mole that Raphael mentioned, where these issues come up in other sectors and the banks can't lend to small, medium-sized enterprises anymore and they feel restricted in so many different ways. And so one of the benefits of workshopping solutions before they become instituted into official policies and regulation is that you can try to avoid some of the unintended negative consequences and anticipate them before before something becomes a blunt policy tool. All right, I think that's a perfect place to pause it. We do have a third part of this series, which will look to new sort of regenerative regenerative ways of looking at different structures to try and address some of these problems. So thank you very much for your time today, Delilah and Raphael. Thanks so much, Alex. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.